This is episode number 601 with Sarah Catanzaro, general partner at Amplify Partners. Today's episode is brought to you by Pachyderm, the leader in data versioning and MLOps pipelines. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Sarah Catanzaro joining us on the program for an episode all about investing, particularly venture capital investments in data science companies. Sarah is a general partner at Amplify Partners, a Bay Area venture capital firm that specializes in investing in early stage startups that are pioneering new applications of data science, analytics, and machine learning. Previously, she worked as an investor at Canvas Ventures, as head of data at Mattermark, and as an embedded analyst at Palantir. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Stanford University. Today's episode will appeal to anyone who's keen to understand investing in early stage startups. In this episode, Sarah details what venture capital is and how it differs from other types of investment like private equity investments, how to go from a data science idea to obtaining funding, how to pick winning investments, what startups can do to survive or raise capital in the current economic climate, the lessons she's learned from 10 years of experience in the field of data science herself, and how to break into the field of venture capital yourself. All right, you ready for this exciting episode? Let's go. Sarah, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? Uh, I am calling in from sunny, albeit chilly, San Francisco, where mm. I am envious of the heat waves happening everywhere else. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is hot in New York at the time of filming. It is yesterday with a thunderstorm and the humidity from that, it was over a hundred. Um, yeah, my puppy does not love that. Oh, I mean, it was a balmy, like 52 degrees here yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, for our listeners in Europe who are experiencing that in Celsius, Sarah means in Fahrenheit, um, this crazy heat wave of a summer. All right, so we know each other from the New York R Conference. So the R Conference has been going on for years. It often has some of the biggest names in data science speaking at it. Wes McKinney is there a lot. Uh, And we recorded a live episode of Super Data Science there live with Hillary Mason, one of the biggest names that we've ever had on the podcast. That's episode number 589. And Sarah, you were a speaker at the R Conference as well. You're a recurring speaker at the New York (laughs) I'm a recently recurring speaker, so this was my my second time presenting there. Second consecutive year. Um, We actually have some questions based on both the talk that you gave last year as well as the talk that you gave this year. So some valuable content that you provided for us. Um, So you are an investor. You have invested actually in a number of our recent speakers' companies, recent guests on the show's companies. So uh, Professor Peter Abiel, another really big name guest that we've had on his robotics company, Covariant. You've invested in them. Peter's in episode number 503. He does a great episode on 
industrializing robotics research. And it's a really nice technical deep dive from a renowned Berkeley professor. And then we also more recently had Professor Tim Kraska. So he's at MIT and he has a company called Einblick that you've invested in, Sarah. So a few different ways that were connected and some really cool companies that you've invested in. Um, so at this most recent R conference, you did a talk on lessons learned from your 10 years of experience in the data science space. Do you want to give us a taste of the lessons that you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in the past three to five years, I feel like data teams have come a long way in terms of adopting new tools, new workflows, et cetera. And they have made significant progress. Um, but there were some lessons learned in the decade prior that haven't really been encoded in the oeuvre you know, of data teams today. So, so for example, I see like a lot of effort being put into preparing data that exists within the data lake or the data warehouse. So, so starting with the data that you have. Um, whereas, you know, I think like uh, 10 years ago, we started to recognize that sometimes the data that we need is not available. And so when starting a new project, we ought to think not just about the data that we have, but also the, about the data that we could collect and how we can collect it. Um, similarly, I think a lot of the tools and best practices that have been adopted really focus more on like collaboration among data professionals rather than thinking about the interfaces between uh, engineers and data scientists or even you know, designers and data scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, in my role in VC, you know, I think often like what I'm doing is thinking about like, what have we learned in the past, but not really implemented? Um, but also, like, what are we learning today that could breed problems in the future? And how might we kind of rethink those, those standards and workflows? Cool. Sounds like an amazing position to be in to be changing the world. So data science, as we know, uh, as probably a lot of our listeners are aware and probably why they're excited about this space, is we have the opportunity with data and automation to make a large number of enormous changes that iteratively transform the world over a many year span, especially a multi-decade span. And in a position like yours, you're providing the capital that allows great ideas to be turned into broadly applicable real world applications. So super cool job. So to go into some specifics about your firm and what the related terms mean, uh, you work at what's called an early stage venture capital firm. So let's break down for listeners that aren't already aware what venture capital is and how that's different from other kinds of investment that a company could uh, obtain. And then what does it mean to be early stage? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the way that I typically explain it is that venture capitalists we exchange capital and expertise for ownership in companies. Uh, so what we typically do is invest uh, capital um, 
usually at our stages, at least you know, 100,000 up to, let's say, like 20 million. Um, and what we buy is equity in startups who have plans to scale uh, beyond like an initial idea or even an initial product, uh, but into a large scale business, large scale enterprise that could be generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and possibly IPO. Um, by early stage, what I mean is that we're not, you know, investing in those companies pre IPO. Um, we're investing in them really like pre product market fit. Now, product market fit is such a nebulous uh, concept, um, but really we're looking at companies where they're still answering questions about like, uh, what are we building? For whom are we building? What problem are we solving? They're still iterating on the, the responses to those key questions. So they're not yet at the phase where uh, you can make certain like sales and marketing optimizations such that if you pour $1 in, you know that you're going to uh, you know, get $2 out. Uh, so that, that's typically what we mean by, by, you know, early stage. These are companies that may be pre-product sometimes, maybe pre-revenue mm. sometimes, but are definitely like pre-product market fit. Got it. So the earliest stage of investment would be like, I guess like angel investment or seed investment when companies definitely don't have product market fit and they might not even have a product at all. They just have an idea. They've maybe put a team together so then they can get that angel investment. And that might be less than a hundred thousand dollars or less than a million dollars um, in most cases. And then in a lot of circumstances, I guess, once they've proved some product elements, uh, they have some working components, uh, maybe, maybe not. Then they come to a venture capitalist like you and they raise a hundred thousand to probably a few million in early stage venture capital at that early stage. And then maybe once they have, uh, once they definitely have their product worked out, but they haven't figured out the product market fit, they haven't figured out exactly to whom they're selling um, or all the possible the different markets they could be selling into. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of your sweet spot. Then, do you work, so once a firm has been working with you, they've maybe done a couple of rounds of raises and there's also, can you, can you distinguish for us this idea of like series A versus series B and so on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, angel precede seed, I would say that like a lot of that can be like fairly nebulous. Um, but during those phases, I think the thing that is critical to have is a long-term vision, like that vision of how you build this billion-dollar business and, and uh, what the future with your product or platform looks like over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and then an MVP, like a, a strong sense of what is the thing that you build first, as well as potentially you know, some hypotheses about like what is the next thing that you build after after the MVP? Like, what is the next set of ideas that you test? So you need to have like an idea about what Z is. You need to have a pretty clear idea about what A is. And then a right. couple of hypotheses about what B might be. Um, at the 
series A phase, you've typically uh, seen some early validation of uh, the MVP. So perhaps you've had uh, some users adopt the platform. Maybe you've signed a couple of deals from uh, those interactions. You're collecting additional information about you know, what people want. Um, you're also collecting additional information about perhaps the competitive landscape or uh, the technical issues that you're going to need to address in order to you know, get to the next step. Um, and you have you know, tested some of these hypotheses about what you should build next. Um, so at Series A, you're not quite at product market fit. You might still have questions about like various personas. Like maybe you know who your user is, but you don't have the clearest sense of like, who are the other stakeholders in a um, buying process? Or uh, uh, how do you ensure that like your tool is sticky and you can you know, retain users over a longer time horizon? Right. Um, but you're 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 off to the races, really. Again, a lot of this is is pretty arbitrary, and I think right. like at times like the ways in which we define seed stage versus series A stage hinges on the macroeconomic climate. Um, But generally speaking, I think about seed as being uh, really about like testing the MVP, getting validation of the idea and kind of collecting information so that you you know how to act or, or proceed from there. Nice. This episode of Super Data Science is brought to you by Pachyderm. Pachyderm enables data engineering teams to automate complex pipelines with sophisticated data transformations across any type of data. Their unique approach provides parallelized processing of multi-stage language agnostic pipelines with data versioning and data lineage tracking. Pachyderm delivers the ultimate CI/CD engine for data. Learn more at pachyderm.com. That's P-A-C-H-Y-D-E-R-M.com. Like the elephant. All right, now back to our show. So then with you guys investing, with Amplify investing at the early stage, um, what's then the desired outcome with the investments that you make? Where are you hoping that they end up um, do you get involved in later investment rounds or do you exit your investment or maybe a mix? Yeah, yeah. A great question. So uh, very tactically, we, we invest primarily at you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, where we will lead the round, which mm-hmm. uh, to simplify things generally means that like we are writing the biggest check and potentially taking a board seat. However, we will participate in subsequent rounds, gotcha. uh, but you know, typically at Series B and beyond, the company will bring in a new investment lead so that they're not just accruing dollars, they're also accruing expertise. Gotcha. Um, so, so at Amplify, we recently closed our, our fifth fund, um, as well as an opportunity fund that doesn't allow us to invest in those subsequent stages. And mm-hmm. that set of funds, it's, it's, uh, 700 million. Before we, the people on the investment team, as well as Amplify's operating team, see any return, 
we need to return $700 million to our LPs. And those are the people who invest in Amplify. The limited partners. Exactly. The limited partners, which are often pension funds, perhaps hedge funds, university endowments. Uh, Given that dynamic, we really need to kind of swing for the fences. So we're not looking to sell portfolio companies to potential acquirers in the like tens of millions, even hundreds of millions. We are really looking for those billion dollar outcomes. I think the other thing that is easy to forget, particularly in a bull market, is that most startups don't survive. Most startups right. don't become you know, billion dollar companies, particularly when you're investing at, at you know, the pre-seed stage when the company right. may not even have a product, let alone right. that that uh, product market validation. So, you know, given that dynamic, it makes it even more critical that we really focus on things that can get big. Nice. That makes a huge amount of sense. You talked about having multiple funds there. So um, my understanding is that this is standard practice at a lot of investment uh, funds, venture capital firms, as well as private equity firms, where you'll have, so, you know, you're called a fund <laughs> often like a venture capital fund, but actually um, within the venture capital company, there are typically multiple funds. So you talked about um, this $700 million fund being your fifth fund. So what does it mean to have these separate funds? Do you have to... Uh, do you have to fill a certain number of investments for each fund? I guess there must be like kind of a target size. You might say, okay, we have um, $700 million. So we'd like to carve this up into um, 20 different investments of a range of sizes. Some of them will be $100,000, which aren't going to take up much of our, or take 7,000 of those investments. Uh, so there's not going to be very many that small. Um, uh you know, to to take up all the investment in that individual fund. So how does that, what's the process like? Is there a time span that you're trying to deploy that capital over? And then uh, when are the LPs expecting a return on that 700 million? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so to be clear, that 700 million is a pair of funds. Uh, mm-hmm. One is our early stage fund. The other is the opportunity fund whereby we invest in our existing portfolio. Gotcha. Um, so, so generally, like we have a 10-year life cycle for funds, which means that we expect to see returns over 10 years. However, on average, I would say we probably deploy a fund. We, we invest uh, in the first, well, we, we, we make our initial investments uh, over the uh, course of like two to three years. So... In the first you know, two to three years of that 10-year cycle, we, we make our bets. However, in the remaining years, we will make additional decisions about like where we want to double down. And so we, we call that you know, concentrating capital. Uh, typically, early stage investors and subsequent investors will have what we call a pro rata right, which is the right to invest in subsequent rounds so that your ownership remains relatively constant. I'm, I'm simplifying things slightly, but for example, if I owned 20% of the company at seed, then I would uh, have the right to own approximately 20% of the company at 
uh, the next round. Gotcha. Now, gotcha. as the round sizes, as as those increase uh, pretty significantly, you know, usually the, the A is going to be bigger than the seeds, the B will be bigger than the A, those pro rata checks end up getting pretty big. And so mm. we have these select funds or opportunity funds as really a strategy to diversify our investments. Um because if we were to write our pro rata checks from the flagship fund, then we could end up with a really high concentration of capital in a few companies, which is a very different approach to mitigating risk uh, than you typically see with an early stage fund where you have like more diversity. Cool. All right, that was a great explanation. I definitely now have a better, better understanding of how venture capital works. So thank you. I'm sure many of our listeners have a better understanding now as well. And one last final question for you is related to this separate kind of investment firm that we often hear associated with later stage companies or bigger companies, which is private equity. So how is private equity different from venture capital? Ah. Uh. Again, great question. So, so I think what people often conflate and, and understandably because they're kind of subsets um, is private equity and growth equity. Um, so, so you know, many private equity firms are investing in private companies that are not startups and helping them kind of streamline their operations such that you know they can sell those companies. Um, and capture the upside. Now, in the past couple of years, uh, an increasing number of companies that would otherwise go go public were you know, staying private. And so you saw a lot of private equity companies also, as well as hedge funds, uh, look at these growth stage startups um, and start making investments in those startups. So, so in many ways, you know, growth equity, which is really, again, oriented towards growth and private equity, which is oriented towards uh, realizing these operational efficiencies are two significantly different investment strategies. Gotcha. So private equity generally is not making growth investments like venture capital is Although sometimes there are scenarios where private equity firms are doing late stage growth investment, maybe in companies that uh, a company like Amplify has already done the early stage investing. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. So, so some private equity firms will have a growth equity practice where you know, they're, they're focused on uh, investing in these companies that are growing rapidly, still experiencing over 100% year-over-year growth, um, whereas others focus primarily on companies where they see opportunities to improve their economics, improve some of their uh, fundamentals by uh, doing like operational restructuring. Gotcha. Makes perfect sense. That was a great explanation. So uh, to sum up, <laughs> um it can actually kind of end up being the case with the early stage venture capital that you're doing in the words of our researcher, Serge Massis, that folks can show up with an idea and leave your office with a briefcase full of money. <laughs> um, but <laughs> they have to have a great idea of um, 
what product A is going to be, a bunch of ideas as to what product B could be, and a big vision as to what product Z or Z uh, might be at that billion dollar uh, company. I, I I would make a few <laughs> corrections. Uh, first and foremost, you must have a post- lot of briefcases. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was I was actually going to say like you know post pandemic we're not typically in the office, uh, uh... <laughs> but but yes we don't typically do capital transfers over briefcase. We we do typically wire <laughs> our investment. Have we invested in companies where it is basically just an idea? Yes. But again, I think it is an idea about the future. It is kind of a clear yeah. set of like product and technical requirements yeah. uh, for the present, yeah. um, as well as kind of demonstrated market and user research about why you know that imagined future and why that uh, immediate product both solve an urgent problem, um, but unlock kind of a better a way of doing things over, again, a longer time horizon. It's probably also the case, uh, I mean, you can tell me if, if I'm wrong, but I would imagine if I was you, I might be more likely to um, to make a pre-product investment if it was going to be working with a team that had demonstrated success in the past. So the individuals on the team are um, already successful entrepreneurs. They have some track record. Yeah, so so actually, that's an interesting one, because I would probably say that the majority of Amplify founders are, in fact, first time founders. Oh, no kidding. Uh, Yeah, so so we actually really focus on um, uh, a persona I might call like the practitioner towards the turned founder. Um, so, So we're looking at people who deeply understand the problem that they set out to solve. Yeah, that's um, definitely the case with Peter Abiel and Tim Kraska, who've been on Super Data Science. Both of exactly. Them are, yeah, deep technical experts who are now, yeah, starting maybe a company for the first time. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think like those are both great examples too, where both of the founders are also technical. Uh, they don't come from like a more traditional business background either. But, you know, they had done research to really understand the technical requirements associated with the solution to the problem that they were trying to solve. They had actually worked with you know, collaborators in an academic setting to better understand their needs and uh, to gain more visibility, not only into the technical requirements, but into the you know, user pains as well as the potential opportunities. Um, and started their respective companies based on, again, like years and years of research. So cool. All right. So getting into more detail about exactly the kinds of companies that you invest in, Sarah, you focus on investing in early stage companies in the data tooling space, everything from databases to analytics engines and ML ops tools. So our listeners can probably get a great sense now of why you specifically were an amazing guest to have on the show on a data science program to talk about venture capital, because that really is your area of expertise. Um, so um, there's, to give a sense of the scale of how this space is changing, um, there is a pretty popular um, diagram, a chart out of First Mark Capital that shows a landscape of companies 
in the data tooling space. And we'll include in the show notes from 2012, there's 150 vendors on it. And last year's chart has over 2,000 companies. So you can barely see the names and logos on the infographic. So in a space like that, that has exploded, it's about 10 times larger in terms of the number of companies over a 10-year span, how do you pick winners in an increasingly crowded space like that, Sarah? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so I think about this through kind of like two lenses. One is how do we pick winners? The other is how do we pick winners in a space like that? Uh, so, so I'll start with how do we pick winners? You know, the thing that I often tell people who are going into early stage VC or who are asking about how we make decisions is that it's people, 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 product, market. As I had mentioned before, when we were talking about you know, Peter Abiel um, and Tim Kraska, uh, we are often investing in deeply technical founders who really understand the domain in which they are building solutions. But we're also looking at you know, people who can articulate kind of a crisp vision of the future, uh, who can do so in such a way that they will embolden and enamor potential customers, recruits, community in some senses. We also want to make sure that in addition to deeply understanding the technology, a potential founder deeply understands and empathizes with the user pain point. So a gotcha in investing is often uh, that you find founders with like a technology that's kind of searching for a problem uh, rather than a technology that is either solving a problem or unlocking a clear opportunity. Um, We do think a lot about like the, the product strategy and, you know, how does that technology get encapsulated in a product um, that one can sell efficiently, um, that one can sell repeatedly without incurring too much services, implementation, and other associated costs. And lastly, you know, we think a lot about the market and whether we expect the market that that company is selling into to expand, to contract, or to become crowded. So let's talk about that. Like, Clearly, you know, the data NML market has become increasingly crowded. Mm-hmm. I think in that vein, what we're typically focusing on is, you know, is this company solving an urgent problem? Is it a problem for which there is no adequate solution? But also, does the founder have a sense of what are the adjacent use cases or workflows that they can expand into? So you're not just solving, you know, that point problem, but you're also thinking about like the the adjacencies. Um, Well, and I think, you know, that's really, that's really important, not just from an investing perspective, but from the perspective of uh, data science practitioners, like, Nobody wants to use thousands of tools. Nobody wants to use like 10 tools to get their job done. I'm not super bullish on like, you know, quote unquote, end to end platforms, like one tool to rule them all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if your options are somewhere between one and 10, like three feels about right, four feels about right. So really identifying like those problems and the things that are orthogonal or, or adjacent that 
you can cover, uh, I think becomes more critical to like uh, delivering a great experience to, to users. Super cool. All right. So to summarize how you pick winners, it's people, 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 product market. And is that, is there a direction to that over time? Or is it mostly just that you, your point is that you're emphasizing people the most? Yeah. So, so at the earliest stages, you don't have much to go off of when you're evaluating you know, products and, and markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody can predict how the you know, markets will inflect over time. Uh, uh, the company is going to iterate on their product. They're going to gain information by interfacing with users in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that hasn't always happened yet, particularly again at the early stages. So really like the thing that you can bet on is, is the people are these great leaders. Do they have kind of a clear sense of thinking about the alignment between technologies, products, and and problems? Um, Over time, you gain information about the product, you gain information about the market. And so uh, the balance shifts away a little bit from people, 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 product market to maybe people, product market. Um, But I think the thing that we see time and time again is that like, it really does take people to make you know, a great company mm-hmm. um, and companies with great leaders that are able to recruit and retain great talent. They're often able to survive you know, some of the hiccups in product or, or market that almost always arise. Right. Cool. That's great perspective. All right. So that gives us a sense of how to pick winners in general. And then do you have specific guidance for when it's a crowded, fast-moving space like data tools? Yeah, I mean, that's where, again, like I get into the the focus on solving an urgent problem, but right. also an urgent problem with you know, these adjacent workflows right, 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 that, right, right. that gotcha. you can expand into. Nice. Perfect. Um, the other thing, actually, that I would yeah. add there, too, is that like, I believe pretty strongly in a reversion to simplicity. So, so I think like often when we have like a new market, uh, take, you know, data science and ML, the first set of tools that, you know, come to market, they're going to be like a little bit clunky. They're going to be a little bit more complex. I'm sure like many of your listeners have felt this when interfacing with tools day to day. But over time, the developer ergonomics should improve. Over mm-hmm. time, the abstractions should become more manageable and, and uh, simple. And y- you see the Hadoops turn into snowflakes. You see Jupyter Notebooks turn into uh, products like Hex. So perhaps, you know, I, I'm just an optimist, but I think you know, over time, markets go up and tools get better. Very cool. Um, so we are currently uh, in an environment that is maybe not as favorable to startups or investment as, say, a year ago. So I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I know from seeing charts that 2021 was by far the biggest investment year ever in early stage startups. Um, and and that grew on already 2020 being, I'm sure, the second best year ever. And so there's a huge amount of capital and to some extent in 2022 with stock markets 
coming down, particularly um, at the time of recording, um, tech-heavy stock markets like NASDAQ are down about 30% from the start of the year. And so this means that the limited partners in funds, the, the, the pension funds, uh, the hedge funds that are investing in, um, in venture capital funds, they are more risk-averse than they were a year ago. And so what can startups be doing differently in this current capital climate, either to survive if they already are a startup or to raise capital if they're looking? Yeah, absolutely. So, so given the uh, current economic climate, I think like many founders are tempted to say like, we're going to slow down, we're going to press pause, and we're going to extend our runway. Um, Runway meaning the amount of cash they have uh, still available um, as far as possible. Um, But often like that is not uh, a sane approach because you need to make progress so Mm. that when the economy rebounds, you haven't ceded market share to a competitor, ignored potential opportunities for product iteration that would enable you to expand into those adjacent uh, categories, things like that. So instead, I think what we're really advising our portfolio companies to do is to understand clearly the ROI associated with uh, their investments, with with the bets that they're taking, and think critically about the milestones that they need to achieve to unlock a subsequent round of financing. Now, like this all may sound kind of obvious because more or less what I'm saying is that like they need to be disciplined. But I actually think this is an area where data and data science has a very clear role. Like we are we are not in a phase in history where you can ignore your LTV to CAC ratio. We are not What does that mean? <laughs> Uh, the the lifetime value of your customer compared to the cost of acquiring that customer. Gotcha. You're we're not you know at a point of time in history where you can just ship anything. Like you need to run experiments. You need to understand how those those product bets are impacting your strategic KPIs and metrics. So. You know, we are telling our portfolio companies, think about what you need to achieve, exercise discipline, but also you know, measure what you're doing and its impact. For those that are thinking about raising capital, well, of course, you know, the first strategy that I alluded to was like, extend your runway, wait a little bit, because there are a lot of investors that are kind of sitting on their hands right now. But for those who are thinking about, you know, raising for the first time, I think what I've seen is that like, the bar has shifted a bit higher. So it may no longer be enough to come in with that vision and the MVP. Now investors might want to see that like you have uh, lined up a set of potential design partners, or, you know, you have built a a prototype that like, you put on Hacker News, and that attracted, you know, a lot of attention and adoption. So, you know, I'm not saying like, 
in order to raise seed funding, you need to have a million dollars in revenue or ARR, recurring revenue. But you probably need a bit more evidence that your idea is is going to land. That is super helpful advice, Sarah. And so it seems clear that part of your role as a venture capitalist is not just to provide the capital, but also to provide guidance to founders uh, and to help them in succeeding in commercializing their products. So if we have listeners out there who have a startup idea or maybe even an early stage prototype, but they don't know how to get venture capital investment, you've already given us some insight. You know, we need to be particularly in this climate we need to be demonstrating the value or maybe even having some recurring revenue already for a product. Um, what else does it take? What kind of roadmap should a listener with a startup idea uh, put together to go from idea to funding? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think one of the most important things for startups is to learn fast so that they can iterate fast. So often, you know, that that first phase involves speaking with hundreds, at least, you know, dozens of potential users and right. getting feedback on the idea. Now, the closer that you can get to an application, the more precise the feedback will be. It's hard to give like high fidelity feedback in response to a verbal articulation of an idea. Slightly easier if there's a deck, even better if there's a prototype, even better if if, there's an application to to actually demo um, or put in the hands of potential users. The other thing that we've seen too, is that you can sometimes test your ideas, not only through user and market research through these conversations, but also through content. Can you, you know, write a blog post where you articulate some of the uh, key assumptions that you're making about the product or, or some of the pillars of its value proposition? If you do that, how do people react? So, so a lot of what we do in the early stages is information gathering. The next set of things that uh, we really think deeply about too is who do we need to hire in order to you know, manifest this idea? Mm-hmm. Um, we primarily, as I said before, invest in technical founders. And so they can typically build the prototype themselves. But in some cases, they're going to have to hire their first engineer. What does it take to convince somebody to leave their job at like a thing company or Mm -hmm. a like growth stage startup Mm -hmm. and join a company that has no product or or like no revenue Uh, we can provide them with guidance on like how to think about a hiring pitch how to think about a hiring roadmap so often you know we are really kind of focused on on the hiring strategy on the product strategy and maybe thinking about like some of the experiments that we want to run to see like the right way to potentially sell this. Nice. So awesome. That's really actionable guidance. Thank you, Sarah. Um, So um, on that idea of experimentation and uh, getting information, this might not be exactly the same kind 
of experimentation. But in a recent interview and presentation, and we'll provide a link uh, in the show notes, the presentation was actually at the R conference last year, the 2021 R conference. You mentioned that there's a lot of opportunity for more advanced experimentation, including observational causal inference. So what is observational causal inference? And why can the experimentation unleashed by it um, create an explosion in business opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as I had kind of alluded to before, I think that one of the most critical aspects of experimentation is that it allows you to clearly understand the ROI associated with your product bets. And as such, particularly in a downturn, but certainly in any uh, market, I think, you know, experimentation helps you uh, really differentiate kind of the the good ideas and the ideas that will move the needle for your company from those that may not be worthwhile to implement or may even have a negative uh, toll on on the business. The gold standard in experimentation is the randomized control trial. Um, However, not all companies will have sufficient traffic to run an experiment. Perhaps they don't have time to run a rigorous experiment, or there's some other issue that would inhibit them from uh, running an experiment. And so they need to think more about uh, leveraging the data that they do have available. Now, in this case, what you're working with is observational data. It's not data that is collected in the course of this RCT. And so over time, companies can think more about like leveraging that data set while still, you know, not just making predictions, but actually understanding the causal impact of potential changes of really kind of understanding things like the mechanism of of action. So so that's generally like what I mean by observational causal inference. I think one of the things that's super interesting to me is that, you know, observational causal inference arguably is not even a tool for like early stage companies. You still do need a lot of data. Um, But it's becoming increasingly adopted by later stage companies uh, where they have a lot of ideas that they want to test. They can't test all of them. Um, And in some cases, they actually want to figure out like uh, which of these ideas should we prioritize for experimentation. Cool. I think I got it. So in an ideal world, the gold standard is to run a randomized controlled trial, but very often, even big companies don't have enough user traffic or time to be running proper randomized control trials. So particularly in early stage companies, doing this kind of observational causal inference that you're describing, making use of data um, to try to, uh, to make predictions as quantitatively as possible in the absence of a proper experimentation can be uh, enormously useful, especially for prioritizing product ideas. Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. So you've made working in venture capital sound pretty interesting. (laughs) It sounds like a great job. Um, I'm sure there's lots of listeners out there that are jealous about what you get to do every week in your role. So how could a listener potentially get involved in venture capital? It's a uh, famously difficult industry. 
to break into. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I've, I've realized about venture over time is that like, it is highly network driven. Um, many of the companies that we end up investing in are introduced to us by, uh, you know, data scientists or, uh, professors or, you know, other technologists within our network. And, you know, often, therefore, like the best way to uh, intersect with you know, a venture capital firm is through these warm connections. Right. So if you are an employee at a venture-backed startup, like maybe ask the founder, like, hey, would you mind connecting me to our investors or reach out to those investors? You're you know, only one hop removed. Or if you have a founder friend, like you can ask to connect through them. What we often see too is that like one of the clear pathways into venture is through either angel investing or advising. So we end up, you know, intersecting with potential team members through our own portfolio companies. Uh, we get experience working with someone who is advising or, you know, writing small checks into companies. Yeah. Um, and from there, you know, solidify the relationship. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So highly network driven industry, but uh, through getting introductions um, or making small angel investments, advising on smaller deals, um, you can get exposure to venture capital firms and that can uh, result in potentially becoming an employee at a venture capital firm yourself. Cool. Um, so are there any particularly exciting investments at Amplify that you think our listeners should be aware of? What's cool that's going on over there? <laughs> yeah, great question. Well, I, I just talked about experimentation. And so one of mm -hmm. our recent investments was in a company called Epo. Uh, which is making experimentation accessible to companies of all shapes and sizes. Um, I think in the past, like a lot of experimentation tools were either really focused on like marketing or like web design changes. They didn't enable you to test things like pricing algorithms or uh, other you know backend changes. So Apo you know, is is uh, uniquely suited for that. Additionally, there were a lot of experimentation tools that were really focused more on feature flagging or assignment. So determining if somebody should be in the test or control arm. But data scientists had to spend a lot of time really like babysitting experiments and, and analyzing experiments. So they have both a statistical engine as well as an experiment analysis UI that really like streamlines the process of experimentation and minimizes the need for data scientists to spend all of their time, uh, you know, just just babysitting experiments. A, another recent investment that uh, we made is in a company called Modal. I won't reveal too much of what they're doing because the company is still in stealth. Yeah. But one of my biggest gripes about the data science ecosystem is that uh, data scientists need to spend so much time on work that is not, in fact, data science, that is neither data nor science. Right. I'm talking about you know, managing cloud resources, thinking about environments in config, 
And so modal is really focused on building a whole set of tools that allow data scientists to focus on the data science to write you know, code and it just runs. So it's another one that, that you know, I'm super excited about. Very cool. Those sound like great companies, Sarah. And I'm not surprised uh, given your depth of knowledge in the field that you're making such wonderful investments. Um, as we begin to wrap up the program, a question that I ask all of our listeners is if they have a book recommendation for us. You got one, Sarah? Oh, gosh, sure. So <laughs> I will, rather than uh, kind of give you like a more traditional answer, one of the books that I recently read that I just loved was Boys in the Boat. When people ask now, like, what is my favorite management book? I, I've been recommending this one. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually about one of the U.S. rowing teams who won the Olympics in Berlin, I believe, like leading up to World War II. Mm -hmm. um, but just thinking about like what it takes to get a team to work together productively, it, it, it gives you insights into that in a really unique way. So it's, it's one I've really enjoyed. Super cool. Thank you for that recommendation, boys in the boat. And obviously, Sarah, you have an enormous amount of information on venture capital, particularly for the data science industry to imbue upon all of us, what are the best ways that listeners can be following you after this episode ends? Yeah, um, I wish I blogged more. I do so occasionally through Amplify, but I'd say like the best way to, to kind of follow what I'm thinking about is probably Twitter. Uh, my handle is just at SarahCat21 or through my newsletter, Projects to Know, where I'm typically highlighting open source projects, academic papers, and other industry content uh, that I think can impact data practitioners in their day-to-day, -day, not just that it is like clickbait worthy. Nice. Those sound like great recommendations. Your blog, Twitter, or newsletter will be sure to include those all in the show notes. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the program and enlightening me and listeners on venture capital investment in the data science sector specifically. It's been awesome having you on the show and maybe some point in the future, we can check in with you again. Awesome. Yeah, of course. It was a pleasure being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah is so much fun to speak with and so deeply knowledgeable about both the fields of data science and venture capital. I feel energized from our conversation and do hope we'll have her on the program again sometime soon. In today's episode, Sarah filled us in on the differences between angel, venture capital, and private equity investment, how early stage investment might be made prior to a firm having product market fit, perhaps even before the firm has a minimum viable product, how the trick to picking winners in early stage investments is people, 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 product, and market, how the trick to accelerating from a data science idea to obtaining funding is iterating quickly and speaking to dozens of prospective customers, and how observational causal inference can be a solid substitute for randomized control trials, especially in situations where you have limited user traffic or time. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Sarah's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 601. That's superdatascience.com slash 601. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another fabulous episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon. <laughs>